Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. This is our 184th consecutive episode, and this time we continue with our sequence presenting the chapters of the book No Bosses, plus added on-the-fly commentary. The chapter's title this time is Who Decides What? So this episode is called Assessing Who Decides What? The key value we arrived at earlier bearing on decision-making was self-management. People should have a say in decisions in proportion to the decision's effects on them. And this chapter, episode, begins, To see why it is hard to attain self-management, consider that when I decide to consume some item from the overall social product, something goes to me that could have gone elsewhere. This means the choice affects others elsewhere. To have collective self-management requires that those others elsewhere have some say, and altogether have quite a lot of say. Similarly, a decision to consume some particular item often impacts the environment. An item's production, use, or disposal might entail pollution that affects people elsewhere, perhaps slightly for each, but a lot in total. Again, to have self-management, everyone has to have some say, and altogether have to have a whole lot of say. Another example. If I decide to wear my black socks tomorrow, and not my blue ones, overwhelmingly that choice affects only me, So I should decide dictatorially, with no one else getting much or even any say. But suppose I decide to consume some of my audio equipment ferociously loudly. It dramatically affects all in hearing range. In that case, shouldn't they have some, and perhaps a lot of say, maybe even veto power? Finally, if a workplace is spewing fumes that contribute to global warming and thus threaten human existence, somehow all those who will suffer the effects need their preferences to count. These are all manageable complexities, albeit they will entail institutions beyond the relatively simple ones focused on in this chapter, this episode. But for now, let's start simple. Consider inside a workplace. Suppose we assume, for the moment, that influence from people outside the workplace is well addressed by structures still to be discussed, which is admittedly a large assumption. I interject. Actually, it's more than a large assumption. It is a large assignment. That is, seeking self-management requires, I think, what we will now discuss, but it also requires means for influences from outside the workplace to properly impact what goes on inside the workplace, and thus implies more institutions, more chapters. But continues this chapter. What implication does advocating collective self-management have for decisions inside the workplace? It's a question one can, of course, ask for families, communities, religious institutions, and political institutions, as well as workplaces. First, all the workers in the workplace will be affected by many workplace decisions, so they will all together need a venue and methods by which to have their say. Let's call this, as have others before us, the Workers' Council. We propose that the Workers' Council is the whole workforce empowered to meet, deliberate, and tally votes to arrive at decisions when need be. What else could it be? I interject, about that much, that all the workers need a venue, there is no wiggle room. To have self-management, we must have that. As to how those councils operate in different situations, even in different workplaces and industries, however, there is wiggle room. More than one approach to deliberating consequences and tallying preferences can be appropriate. 
Indeed, different types of decisions or different workplace contexts might very well mean different methods for different situations. What is necessary is the counsel per se. We continue with presenting the chapter. If we call a collective vehicle of workers to make decisions in a workplace by any other name, it would still be a workers' council. Some decisions will at least seem to affect all workers essentially equally. The length and timing of the workday, when the lights are on or off, duration and time of breaks, use of air conditioning, and the total output and therefore total work level. Also, some norms, if needed, about clothing, noise levels, or perhaps what holidays to observe would affect everyone, and about equally, or so it seems. So a first thought is that perhaps the Workers' Council, a time-honored structure that has long been considered central to any kind of worker self-management, can operate totally according to one person, one vote, majority rule. But wait a minute. Do all these decisions, in fact, actually affect everyone equally? What if those with families and those without have markedly different dependency on the timing of arrival and departure from work? What if some people have conditions that make air conditioning far more important for them? What if different workers of different nationalities or religions are differently impacted by holiday choices? The answer for how to handle such variations within workforces is ultimately up to each workplace to determine. After all, we have in mind that they collectively self-manage themselves. I interject. This is one reason why details of what we propose for a new, worthy, and viable economy are not really for us to determine. They will depend on the preferences and situations of future workers, also on contexts we can't now predict and will require knowledge we don't now have. It is the essence of the sought institutions that we need to settle on, not their details. And so we continue. As one possible approach, sessions of workers' councils in each workplace might first arrive at various procedures deemed sufficient, or, when possible, ideal, for giving affected parties appropriate say in particular types of decisions. This menu of mutually ratified procedures might include one-person, one-vote majority rule for some situations, but two-thirds needed, or consensus needed, and so on for other situations. Likewise, different workplaces might settle on different methods of conveying information and on different durations and procedures for deliberation in different cases. Perhaps the list of available options for deliberations and tallies will be revisited yearly or bi-yearly, and it certainly could be different in different workplaces due to their different features and the different preferences of their workers. However, once such agreed procedures exist in a workplace, one could be quickly chosen as appropriate for each new issue or for categories of issues and deliberations could proceed. It would be in everyone's interest to handle such matters without undue time wasting while attending to the needs of all involved. I interject. So far, so good. But now comes another wrinkle or complication, and the chapter continues. Complicating deliberations and votes within a workers' council, many workplace decisions reverberate outward. What technology we employ affects what we produce, and therefore what others get to consume. What energy we use and what we do with our waste affects neighbors, and perhaps far more widely. To implement collective self-management, such decisions would have to be made in ways that give appropriate influence to affected workers in the specific workplace, but also to affected folks outside that workplace. 
This trajectory of thoughts about how to make decisions is the purpose of settling on guiding values. The guiding values provide standards for generating and also for assessing proposals for new institutions. I interject. I felt this was an important point, writing it, and I still do. The idea is we want to implement such and such value, in this chapter, most prominently, self-management. That informs what we reject and what we settle on. We are merciless. If a proposed institution violates our values, we reject it. If one furthers our values, we consider adopting it, with the remaining key criterion being whether it plays well, fits mutually supportively with other features that we favor. The chapter continues. Some would reply, phooey on self-management. Let's just let one person decide. It's much less messy. Let's strive to have the best decider be that person. It's much more efficient. Our contrary claim for democracy, and beyond democracy for self-management, is that imposed order is not, in fact, less messy. Instead, imposed order merely obscures messiness. Imposed order hides or ignores people being alienated and even suffering inferior outcomes. It appears less messy only if we don't value the input that is excluded and don't count the accruing damages. Within the guidelines of seeking collective self-management, one workplace could lean toward using more streamlined methods of decision-making. Another workplace could lean toward more careful methods that a lot more time for hearing and exploring minority views. Indeed, people might very sensibly choose where they want to work, in part due to their taste for more or less detailed workplace decision-making procedures. Over time, and with experience, we would expect various approaches would presumably prove themselves better at arriving smoothly and rapidly at desirable and collectively respected decisions. Those approaches would presumably be used more often. However, within each firm, it would be up to the firm's workers' council. The workers' council would, in this view, become the main repository of decision-making power within each workplace, not an owner, not a boss, collective self-management. I interject. We have workers' self-managing councils as a necessary feature. On top of it, we have contingent options for how it will operate with the condition that its operation accomplishes self-management. The chapter continues. The above brief description applies as well to the consumption side of economics. Individuals consume individual goods and services from the overall social product. But so do neighborhoods, counties, and states consume collective goods and services from the overall social product. And like for workers, consumers' choices affect themselves, whether individually or in groups, but also affect others. So by analogy, for collective consumption of neighborhood pools, county parks, state utilities, or national security, we propose consumer councils as the venue of consumer decision-making, with the same kinds of reasoning and flexibility regarding their methods, and I interject the necessity for additional influences. And, back to the chapter, noted above for workers' councils. Various day-to-day -day implications of all this will become more concrete when we eventually address how workers and consumers can arrive at actual choices of what and how much to produce and consume via new allocation institutions. But even for this brief introduction to economic decision-making, we have to raise two additional concerns. One is a complaint that turns out to be rather simple to resolve. The other is a derivative need 
that is far more complex and consequential for a future new economy and society, and even for how we might win such a, such a future economy. First, some complain that extensive participation in decision-making would diminish the quality of decisions made. Whether in a workplace or a neighborhood, why shouldn't Joe get more or less say, depending on how good a decision-maker Joe is? By preventing that, doesn't the participatory approach undercut the benefits of expertise? Won't we suffer bad decisions? The answer to this complaint is that the opinions of experts are, of course, incredibly valuable. But should the fact that Joe is an expert in engineering or chemistry or whatever else consequential to some decision convey to Joe more say even in a decision that quite strongly involves engineering or chemistry? We should certainly consult Joe's expertise. But for a choice affecting Joe's work team or Joe's workplace, after he is consulted, why shouldn't Joe have a say like all others, rather than an elevated say? The point is, Joe is not an expert in how much a decision matters to you or I, or in how you or I feel about it. We are the world's foremost experts in our own preferences. And to honor our special and unparalleled expertise regarding our own preferences, collective self-management says we should have a say in the decision, even while we should also, of course, pay close attention to Joe's expert insights. Consider an intimately connected concern. Susan has proved over time to have an incredible facility for always advocating decisions that experience later shows to be exceptionally wise. She is a very good decision maker. She is simply the best decision maker in the workplace. She is best by a large margin. Okay, why not simplify everyone's time commitment by having Susan make all decisions? Even if we ignore that these assumptions are highly unreal in virtually any context, and are certainly highly unreal once we have fully participating and highly prepared workers who each bring to deliberations and votes different experiences, and even if we ignore the corrupting impact Susan's lordly influence would likely have on Susan's consciousness, this logic ignores the value of each person feeling that decisions respect his or her input and say. To think experts shouldn't just offer their wisdom for others to evaluate and even learn from, but should themselves decide outcomes would not only rule out collective self-management, it would also rule out even limited democracy. The reason we shouldn't rule out either is both that no such general and universal expertise as Susan's exists, and, even more important, people's exclusion from decisions that affect them creates problems far worse than a somewhat worse choice being made, even if that did happen now and then. Participation matters. That sounds compelling. But a related, more complex issue that collective self-management in workplace and consumer councils raises, in addition to raising the question of finding actual institutions able to provide appropriate say relative to those outside the councils, is how to ensure that all workers and all consumers are prepared to contribute positively to decision-making. For even after agreeing that we are each the world's foremost expert in our own preferences, we cannot deny that if we have lots of workers who lack the confidence, skills, and knowledge to make important decisions well, well, then even if we apportion voting rights appropriately and provide relevant time for deliberation, their uninformed and unskilled involvement will give us seriously flawed results. In a good economy, 
What prevents that? More specifically, we will soon argue that in most current workplaces, the number of people in the whole workforce in a position to have informed opinions is roughly one out of every five. Why is that? And how do we raise it to five out of five as a precondition for having effective, optimal, self-managed decision-making? I interject. The kind of reasoning going on is germane to all matters of decision-making. We have some goals for some part of our vision. We come up with means to meet those goals. We then ask, what does using those means imply that we need to accomplish as prerequisites of our new means functioning well, and also fitting with other features we opt for? Still interjecting. Remember we first got rid of private ownership of productive assets. That meant we needed a new approach to decision-making to replace capitalist rule. It also meant we needed a new approach to apportioning the social product to actors. We have begun addressing the first issue here, with discussion of council self-management. We will address the latter issue, income distribution, in a later chapter, that is, in a future episode. We also have to address, as an implication of opting for workers and consumers self-management, how it is that everyone will be able to arrive at wise and appropriate decisions. That is, and now this round of interjecting ends and the chapter continues, we consider universal preparedness for decision-making next chapter. And there we also consider related issues of class relations and class rule. Our answer for the economy, as we will see, turns out to raise the issue of how to better apportion tasks into jobs via a new non-corporate division of labor. But for now, inside a workplace, we can already propose that how a work team allocates its time and arranges and conducts its activities is largely, or even completely, the team's choice. Assuming, that is, that the team operates in accord with broader agreed decisions taken by the whole workplace or the whole society for the timing of holidays, the length of the workday, the level and character of workplace product and output, and so on. Within a team, what affects only the team is theirs to decide. Within a team, if someone is dramatically affected by some aspect, then according to our self-management ethic, he or she would get more say about that aspect. And within a team, if folks outside are affected, then by some means, they too should be able to impact the decisions that affect them. This approach to decisions in context of overarching other decisions will recur at many points in thinking through economic but also other social structures. For now, however, to achieve collective self-management, it follows that some decisions may best be taken by one person, one vote, majority rule, because everyone is comparably affected. But other decisions may best require two-thirds to pass, or even a variant of consensus, in cases where anyone might be horrendously, adversely affected, so that everyone should have a veto. Likewise, some decisions will presumably have more time set aside for deliberation, especially of dissenting views, and some less. Maybe hiring a new member requires in one workplace, for example, two-thirds to pass, though anyone can veto, but perhaps not in another workplace which opts for a different approach. It turns out that with a self-management view, diverse ways of tallying preferences become methods that we judiciously choose so as to best approximate self-management. Self-management is the overarching principle, not one person, one vote, not consensus, not any other approach chosen in a particular case to serve self-management in that case. We propose that councils choose among deliberation and voting procedures to attain self-management as best they can without spending more time or resources than they wish to allot to the process.
In other words, we choose to not always favor one person, one vote majority rule. One person, one vote majority rule is not an absolute to always respect. We instead propose to have one person, one vote majority rule only when it is the best way to attain or to at least best approximate self-management for all who are affected by a particular decision. One person, one vote majority rule of everyone on my work team about my choice of socks would be idiotic. One person, one vote with three quarters support required for adding a new hire to a work team but anyone on the team who feels strongly that the proposed addition would make his or her life miserable can veto might make excellent sense. Using different methods in different situations may seem strange, but it turns out that when we are free to do so, it is how caring friends or workmates most often relate to one another even now. It is not as unfamiliar as an abstract description might make it appear. You are in a group, you are with a group deciding on a movie to go to. If a movie is proposed that someone has seen, he or she likely gets a veto. Otherwise, perhaps majority rule, or maybe consensus. Different strokes for different folks and for different situations. So the answer to the question, who decides what, is that we propose that everyone participates in deciding issues that affect them, with each person having a level of influence in proportion to the degree they will be affected. This is not mere rhetoric. It is not for academic sessions and then back to humdrum reality. It is a serious goal to attain. As such, even if councils agree with this goal, the who decides what problem for an economy still has two critical issues to address. First, how do we assure that everyone has experience and circumstances that convey sufficient skills, confidence, and information to make good decisions? And second, how do we incorporate the desires of people who are affected at a distance so they can appropriately influence decisions that are enacted locally? Societies are socially entwined systems of institutions and people. Each new feature that we propose for a new economy will put limits on and establish requirements for other new features that will need to work along with it. That is an unfolding characteristic of thinking about vision, whether economic or any other. And so, we proceed to consider the character of work in a new economy. That is how the chapter ended, announcing the focus of the next chapter, or in our case, a coming episode. I hope this presentation of No Bosses, plus current brief interjections, is useful for folks, both for understanding this particular economic vision, and also, I have to admit, for getting familiar and comfortable with some useful approaches to thinking about any kind of social vision, and thus to contributing to that process. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off until next time for Revolution Z.